When it comes to thematic investing, there are more and more interesting, or some might say weird themes. Let's not forget that the purpose of thematic investing is to give us alpha. Alpha means you beat the benchmark, you beat the market. You're being opportunistic by allocating more to a certain space. So how do you screen for good funds? And what are some challenges in thematic investing? Out of so many themes out there, today we're going to highlight three themes that you should be looking at to get good returns. Let's find out how to use thematic investing instead of the usual index funds to get alpha. This episode is sponsored by Prosperous by CGS CIMB. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, my name is Andrew and welcome to another Chill with TFC episode. In this series, we talk to interesting people with relevant experience and insights to help us learn from their perspectives so that we can create the life we love and manage our finance as well. My guest today is an Associate Director on the Discretionary Portfolio Management Team at CGS CIMB Securities. His job includes managing discretionary investment mandates for the team. And that includes conducting quantitative research to uncover new sources of alpha. We love that word alpha. And also to build proprietary, strategic and tactical asset allocation models, multi-factor equity strategies and mutual fund selection models. All these means he's a quant, he's a numbers person, smart guy, and he has unique insights based on his way of thinking and looking at things. Let's welcome Jake. So we're going to talk about thematic investing. You have your own take on it. Now, maybe you run through with me some of the points that you want to bring across in this conversation. Yeah. Okay. Broadly speaking, my own definition of thematic investing, it's anything that falls out of the call allocation, uh, meaning they are typically sector specific. Um, let's say things like technology, things like industrials, things like materials, right? Moving Beyond these sectors, you have your subsectors and your industries and sub-industries. So thematic investing, I've, in my own definition, is very broad, right? So it's easier, at least for me, to, to lump it as something that's non-broad market, something that's focusing on a specific sector. So therefore, um, there, are, there, there have been, always been things like, let's say, focus on technology funds. In fact, technology funds has, has always been doing very well historically, um, one of the largest alpha alpha provider. The only thing is uh, because like all sector or some, most of the thematic funds they are cyclical, depending on a lot of uh, macroeconomic events to drive the underlying uh, rotation from the global asset managers moving from financials into technology and things like that. So I typically view thematic investing Right, whether it's sector-based or a very narrow team, it's usually a bit more tactical approach. And uh, in fact, a lot of fund managers, they, they do that so-called tactical rotation or sector rotation. It's, it's the same thing. They're just rotating in and out of sectors or industries based on how some of the drivers, uh, macroeconomic drivers are developing. In the most instance, or rather in the most recent event that we are witnessing right now, you can see the financials are moving up or at least uh, the financials are experiencing an, a net inflow of capital because compared to, to the technology sector, when you go back to the fundamentals, you, you, you know that um, the discount rate is going up. So therefore, anything relating to technology will likely suffer because of the cash flows. It's uh, a, a bit hard to forecast too far down the path. So therefore, this rotation is taking place and it may continue to, to sustain for a while longer. Mm, yeah. Interesting. You brought up technology as a theme, although yeah. some of us might be so familiar with it that we might not think of it as thematic investing anymore. That's why I, I think it's very important to, to lay down my definition of thematic investing. But of course, it can go narrower into things like EV, things like solar, things like green energy. 
Yeah, it, it can be very narrow. Mm, in fact, there's so yeah. many themes nowadays. Yes. Anything you can think of, there's a theme Precisely. for it, right? Precisely. Um, e-commerce as a theme or yep. meme stocks as a theme. That's right. right. That's right. What's your take on that? Those are very, very short term, especially if, if it's uh, not backed by fundamentals, right? In fact, they tend to mean revert uh, far faster than most people can anticipate. So I would say if you think that you want to get that kind of exposure, um, if you're savvy enough, you can take the risk enough, why not, right? But the key thing is about managing your exposure. For most of the investors out there, the hardest thing to do is when you have zero exposure and you see that thing move up, right? So determining how much exposure to have, I think that's the most, most crucial thing. Um, never think of like putting all in or giving, um, let's say going all in, simply because that you think the gains are good. Because when it flip or when it roll over, you couldn't be fast enough or couldn't be decisive enough to know how and how much to get out, how much losses to take to get out or how much um, gains or level gain, gains that you can take while getting out. Because um, humans are always driven by a lot of psychological things to hold back from being decisive, right? So um, when it comes to a very tactical part of the investing, uh, I would say it's more challenging. It's not meant for everyone. Mm. So would you agree that when people choose thematic investing, well, it's to beat the index, right? If not, why else would you do that? Correct. It is definitely possible. Um, But of course, the the key thing is you need to know how much of it you're you're dedicating or allocating to the so-called tactical exposure. Is it going to be 20% of your entire portfolio? Is it going to be 30% or is it going to be 70%? Right? Of course. Uh, if you can time it right, your gains are definitely going to likely beat the market, mm. right? But the biggest question is because investing is a long haul game, how frequent and how consistent can you be? Okay. That's the biggest question. Right. So are there bad themes, bad ideas for themes? You know, have you ever seen people try thematic investing and it did not work out? Uh, yes, but I think because they do not know what they're doing in the first place. And uh, second thing is there are a lot of product pushing in the marketplace. They are- Because it's hyped up right now. Yes, correct, yeah. correct. As you remember, I have this ex-colleague of mine who is a high net worth individual. So the banks, usually they will target this high net worth and they will go to the client and say, these are the things in, in vogue now. So mm-hmm. you can't go wrong. Yeah, yeah. Right? So even though you're a high net worth client doesn't mean you're financial, uh, your investment savvy in this case, and you may not know when to call it quits because usually when the RM sells something to you, you know, two years down the road, you can't find that RM. That's usually the case. And on top of that, um, I find that the broad Singaporeans, I, w- I would say the broad, broader part of the population do not have an interest to equip themselves with, with the right knowledge. They tend to tilt towards something that is like a, you know, get rich quick scheme mm. or either something that a program that is too fast to too much like a shortcut to really equip yourself to deal with all these uh, movements in the market. Okay, so what yeah. do you think is hype and what do you think has more value that we should be looking at mm. in the long term? Aha, uh-huh. okay, that's... Well, invoke, right? Talk about invoke, right? Metaverse is invoke. Yes, <laughs> There's a correct. metaverse theme that I saw recently. Agree, agree. Yeah. Um, metaverse, like um, a lot of all this hype. Yes, a lot of people who are in IT or in the, those very advanced IT guys, they, they don't even, they can't even put a finger to what's metaverse, mm. right? Of course, we, we can only find ourselves along the way while we develop all this technology. And of course, uh, right now the ecosystem is... It's, it's diverse, right? Nobody can really pinpoint what's going to happen. I can only say, yes, the, the future is always driven by changes in technology. We do not know what's going to happen and having the right exposure, right? Be it 5 to 10% of a portfolio in names that develop metaverse or they're in the metaverse ecosystem, I think it's a good bet to have zero bet. Right, but then again, metaverse still goes back to either the technology sector or the communication services sector. So even if you say, I don't want to be so narrow, I want to bet on communication services, which is some of your names, your familiar names like uh, Facebook, um, Google, right? They are by virtue having some exposure to metaverse, but they are in the broader sector. So um, to have exposure to these names, it's a proxy for being part of metaverse as well. 
right? I mean, yeah. there's also hardware. Yeah, correct. And there's, there's so many things correct. that you can... And the metaverse, well, it depends on how you look at it. It's not even... Uh, you don't see it yet. Correct, correct. In the and near future, at least. Yeah, yeah um, a lot of people can't even describe it properly, mm. right? So as of now, strictly speaking, I would say it's a hype until we can see, uh, you know, something more tangible okay. <laughs> developing. So your personal style is that you would take a step back and then you would see something, you look at the fundamentals before you invest in themes. Would you describe that as your your style? For the tactical part, that means on mm-hmm. the trading part, I will make a bet if I I, I feel comfortable about it. Okay. You uh, allocate a bit to, to, th- the, to the bet. Right. Yeah. Correct. Uh, it doesn't need to have any fundamentals. Mm-hmm. For the investment side, it needs to be backed by fundamentals. Okay. So yeah. let's talk about the, tech, the trading part first, mm-hmm. right? So what do you look at? You look at the, the charts price movement price definitely movements. because price movement tells you the aggregate um, capital flows um, be it professional or, or retail in fact most of the time it's, all, it's the aggregate uh, institutional flows that drive the market unless in very very um, specific markets that are controlled by the retail like for example the, the Chinese market but nonetheless you are looking at the aggregate market and in a nutshell it's demand and supply how strong is the supply side and demand so you can Put it simply, it's a it's a constant battle between the bulls and the bears, right? Whoever is winning out in the short, medium term, and in fact, in the long term. And because my background is actually from the technical side, and it's actually through developing more in-depth knowledge of the technical aspect of the market, then the fundamental side actually develop and evolve along the way because I, I, te- I, I learned to appreciate what is all these connecting drivers between the two forces, mm. right? Um, if anyone were to ask or anyone were to challenge me, technicals don't work, I would say you don't know enough technicals to to speak about that. <laughs> How would you convince them otherwise? Like what are the indicators you look at and what are your results using your, all these indicators and your you know um, strategy? Okay, I, I, I don't want to say I mm. can do better than some of the guys out there, but those guys out there who can outperform the market are usually the ones who pay very close attention to how the technicals are playing out because the technicals are basically, like I said, the net flows of money mm. by changing hands and where is it likely to go. If you want to beat the market, you've got to pay attention to where this um, flows are going. And this is what the academic um, factor called momentum right of course a lot of people that i spoke to a lot of people that i i engage with they tend to like or love value investing more mm. i i cannot explain why but um in my, in my own work and my own research given the the intimate knowledge that i've developed over the years value investing if it, it works right because ultimately it's a, it's a factor the only question is how do you implement those factors? Mm, when you mention factor, I understand that's a yeah. very technical and sp- specific term that you're using, right? Could you explain it for that, me? That's right. Uh, because actually factor investing is nothing new. Mm. It's what we are very commonly used to, like value investing, trading, like trend following. Trend following is very similar to momentum, mm. right? And if you look at momentum, of course, you can go into the more specifics like absolute and relative momentum, right? I don't want to bother you with that, but essentially it's where the market is hating or where the, let's say, the instruments or the sectors are hating. And broadly speaking, if we are investing for the long term, the asset class such as equities, especially global equities, right, without tilting to a specific country, it's a net positive regression. That means your long-term net aggregate returns you're looking at 7 to 8% annualized, right? But of course, if you have a certain tilt or you have a, sp- uh, a specific strong exposure to a country like, for example, US that has been outperforming the rest of the world, mm. yes, you will do better if your your portfolio is concentrated with US exposure. Okay, so but, the tilt is help is what helps you beat the market or underperform it? Uh, beat the market. Beat the market, Correct. okay. Uh, either by performing better the market or beating the market because... Uh, beating the market, uh, very few guys can do it consistently. You mm-hmm. can beat the market, so-called beat the market, over the next, over the last two to three years. But yes, correct. The consistency is something that a lot of people cannot claim to have. If people have been following the, the global financial investors, those that are really good, somehow very ob- obscure, some of the names has been doing very well, like the Medallion Fund. 
they are a very secretive hedge fund. They don't accept outside money. They they have kicked out external investors for a long, long time because they know by accepting more money, they will erode the capacity to make money, right? And um, even though it's very secretive, you can more or less gauge from all these public uh, appearances by the founder. And some of the guys, uh, I believe there, there was a recent launch uh, on this book that, that describes the, the inner workings of the uh, Renaissance technology, right? Of course, one of the key things to make, make money consistently, beat the market, it's to follow the momentum factor, right? Even when I, I, can, I can show you a lot of um, track record of how these factors has been performing, momentum has always been the best performing, but it suffers a lot from, from the momentum reversal um, from time to time. So it's not easy to implement because um, you need to know when to get in and out and when to pull back on allocating to momentum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's also the difference between retail investors versus institutions, that's right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. For a lot of funds, whether they claim to be fundamentally driven or non-fundamentally driven, in order to beat the market, you need to have exposure to the momentum factor, whether it's intentional or unintentional. Otherwise, you cannot beat the market. Right. If you consistently can beat it, then you're the god, right. god of investing or something. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So, but then again, because the, the cultural thing is very deeply entrenched in the investment community because people still love to hear from the investors or the, the asset managers that, hey, I'm a value investor mm. or I'm very fundamentally driven. Yeah. Because the minute you bring out something that says, we're using technicals, we're using this and that, using RSI, they, they tend to shun away from this kind of strategies, mm. right? But then again, they'll be attracted to the strategies if it's, you know, being presented in a different narrative. So if everybody's saying that they're looking at fundamentals, they're doing value investing, how should I look at the fundamentals in this case? If you ask me a value, a value investor or fundamentally driven fund that can beat the market, it's doing two things. First, it is implementing the value factor correctly. Second thing is they manage to blend the momentum factor into their investment strategy, right? So there are many guys who who can do that, um, except that because in the investment universe, let's just strip out ETFs, for example, because ETFs are mostly passively driven or passively followed mutual funds, right? Because ETFs are essentially just mutual funds wrapped in a different format, right? For mutual funds to do that, they, they can, but usually they will restrict capacity and therefore they are not your usual high-profile funds out there, right? Without going to specific names, there are a lot of guys out there who can do relatively well, but it's just not so well-known. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because due to a lack of marketing or they simply is happy with the kind of capital they are managing. So as a retail investor, I mean, there's so many different themes, right? Yep. Each of them, I should look at them different, different fundamentals. That's How should I approach it? Is, do you have any advice for that? Well... I would say value works, mm. right? But some of the value... Uh, but how, how do I determine the value? <laughs> I mean, we, we can give examples. I mean, yep, there's always the, the few famous themes, correct. ESG, healthcare, technology. We can talk a, a bit about those. Correct. If you're just looking at ESG mm. team right now, because it's, it's the talk of the town. Yeah. <laughs> talk um, about themes, talk about ESG. <laughs> that's right. That's right. For, so for ESG team, it's typically very closely or highly correlated with the quality factor. If you look at it, if you dissect most of the funds out there or most of the indices out there, it has got a high exposure to quality. And by virtue of uh, having high quality exposure, it's essentially not a cheap factor. Mm. Right? Quality factor would be? Quality factors would be looking at your earnings, your mm. balance sheet, your leverage. And usually those are big established firms that are not your typical growth um, companies like those in the high tech yeah, those unicorns that are not profitable yet. So quality give you a fair amount of uh, margin of safety. Of course, let's say um, your PNG is definitely having a lot of quality factor driving the price movement. Not so much of value because you don't you don't typically find PNG trading at very low multiples. Like recently, when we see the the financial um, sector moving up. Financial sector has got a high, a high exposure to the value factor because when you look at the multiples, it's usually very low compared to the broad market. Usually banks are trading around uh, one to 1.5 times to book. 
their PEs are typically below the double digit, uh, usually in the lower range when the market is not doing well. And you don't usually find banks trading at like 30 times to to to, to earnings. Mm. You don't. And therefore, um, sectors and factors are actually closely correlated. Because ESG typically looks at the high quality factor, uh, people tend to think that it outperforms the market. Yes and no, right? Um, because in most of the broadly constructed indices, when you're having like 100, 200 names within the index, it's very easy to believe that um, the, the, the team works, right? But because it's broadly exposed, so it's uh, not that narrow and it tends to do fairly okay and stable. So... Plus the fact that ESG is uh, still a relatively new team and there's a lot of uh, data gaps, like um, let's say data provider A would, would classify or categorize a particular company as a low risk in the ESG space, but another data provider may or may not cover that name or mm-hmm. may view the company differently. So these are a lot of gaps that we're trying to... We're trying to identify before we go into ESG investing. So is that something you avoid? Because you know how, how do companies get you know, turn into a, an ESG play? Um, right? Correct. Because the, another problem with ESG is the disclosure, the public disclosure that mm. the companies they themselves make. If I don't disclose that, that doesn't mean I am not ESG compliant, right? So it's a matter of disclosure. But of course, right now we see the marketplace um, self disclosure is getting more and more common. People. People are getting more motivated to disclose, but I would say it's it's a demand and supply thing because right now the marketplace is demanding more, a rather higher disclosure from companies, and the the trend going forward is they will disclose more, right? The next question is how do you decipher all this information, right? Because collecting all this information is very laborious. The data provider would would vary from the way they collect the data and put them into a quantifiable matrix and into a quantifiable score. So therefore, before you invest, I would I would simply say um, you really got to deep dive and see how they construct their ESG scoring methodology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Meaning if, companies are ranked according to how well they do in the ESG factors. That's right. And that's then they're, right. they're put into a, a scoreboard and, and whether they enter this theme or not in the Correct. first place. And yes, also saying that there's a lot of gap in terms of the data that we yes. have in this space right now. Right. But it's still very popular. Why is that so? It, it's appealing to your you know, noble <laughs> aspirations, you know, to do good for the environment. Uh, you know, it's just a different group of investors, right, that are interested in this. That's right. That's right. Of course, the institu- institutional side, the, the speed of picking up this ESG team actually didn't, didn't do too well when MSCI was pushing it back in the 2015 and 2016 mm. time because um, I, I was talking to them and they were very bullish about the ESG team. But of course, institutional at that point in time wasn't ready because of all these gaps that we mentioned. But things have changed and evolved over the years. It's getting more transparent. It's getting more um, easy to collect all this data. But then again, there are still a lot of things to, to improve upon. And I would say it's a, it's an ongoing challenge for how we decipher this different data providers and their methodology, which one works better. In fact, right now, my 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 project in work is to uh, deep dive and understand <laughs> the methodology of all these data provider. And it's not easy. You really got to spend time reading how they construct all their uh, matrices, how they determine whether where to cut off certain... Yes, mm. yeah, it's a lot of work. Not easy. Any interesting <laughs> thing you discovered from this process? Uh, yes, yes. Um, a lot of people claim that they have ESG research capabilities. Yes, most of them is true. They, they do. But how they collate the data and how they put together into something useful, that's still very questionable because it's easy to do something simple than to do something complicated. But by doing something complicated doesn't mean it's effective as well. Mm. Yeah, correct. Mm. So... I would say it's. I wouldn't. I wouldn't think I would prefer to name someone mm. within this field, because uh, I think there's still a lot of things that I need to find out before I can. Sure, maybe we can have another deeper conversation That's about right. that after you've done more research on it, right? That's right. But generally, how have um, ESG teams performed? Short term, mid term, long term? How have they done? For developed markets, it's done mm. relatively well. Okay. Correct. Uh, because the, it, it's... Uh, it's driven by hype or do you think there's no, fundamentals not, behind it? 
it's not driven by height, mm. but because of the fundamentals behind it. Okay. Right. So the ability to capture this ESG score, it's uh, more prevalent, or it's easier to collect this ESG data and put them into useful scores in the developed markets because of the high disclosure from from the public listed entities. In Asia, it's not so, but I believe it's going to catch up soon because when there's demand, the, the supply will follow. So if I were to get started into thematic investing, do you think I should pick a, a theme that mm-hmm. uh, I'm interested about, I have a competence in, I, I have knowledge about it? Like, How should I start? You know, What should I take note of in thematic investing? I think like all habits, not habits, sorry, like all hobbies, right? Uh, we should really be passionate about, we should really spend a lot of time reading up. In fact, there is a lot of literature out there by this data providers or by a lot of free and public portals like investing.com, Wikipedia. Um, I think that's uh, Investopedia. Yeah, correct. By spending a lot of time, even in this free domains, I, I think you will pick up a lot of knowledge and a lot of skills to start implementing in your investment, uh, sorry, in your investing hobby. Mm. Right. Um, But of course, if you don't spend the time and the effort, you won't be, it's just like games. You you don't spend time playing the games well, you're not going to do well. Well, For you, what are the top three themes you're looking at? I would say electric vehicle, Mm. correct, because it's very tangible. It's something that you can track very closely. Artificial intelligence, it affects a lot of our day-to-day lives, like a lot of algorithms that um, are behind all these websites that we are we are using on a day to day basis. What kind of what kind of uh, spending patterns, right? Uh, I would say it has to do with how technology advances and how we use algorithms. Mm. Yeah, of course, uh, AI in the AI space, like the ESG team we talk about, there are a lot of guys who, who claim that you know we are AI competent, we are AI capable, but a lot of the AI is actually not AI. <laughs> It's yeah. just very simple, basic machine learning this stuff. Using mach- yeah, using Correct. computers to do things. That's AI. Everything is AI. Yeah. <laughs> Me using my laptop is also AI. <laughs> In some ways, yes. Yeah. But th- th- those are the very basic AI levels that we're talking mm. about. Not so much into the neural networks. Correct. There are some guys doing a lot of work, especially in the investment world right now, but they, they still can't find a very good way of uh, applying neural networks. Uh, because it's simply not easy because of the very simple fact that the markets are very unstructured, right? Neural networks is good at doing unstructured environment. But then again, because you need a lot of inputs, right? It, because it learned by itself. So it depends on what kind of data you put into the model, then it can self-learn. So very much how, uh, how well the model will work depends on what kind of data you put in. Mm. Yeah, so even though you can have a very good deep learning algorithm, but if you don't feed it enough data, you won't learn good and you won't have good outputs. Mm. Could you give us an example of a company doing AI and deep learning and building all these neural networks? I would say Google. Google. Google, yeah, okay. correct. Okay. Google and uh, IBM. Okay, so and yeah. your AI play will include, consists of all these companies. Correct. Yeah, in, in fact, uh, without going into specific like AI, Google is the leader in terms of technology. And that's also one of the reasons why it's leading in, in a lot of the broad market indices. Yeah. Okay. Correct. So EVs, AIs, is there another one that you're looking at? If I were to ask um, for a top three. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If not, we can focus on this too. I would say technology is ultimately what shapes our world because it will filter down Mm. into other sectors or industry industries as well because in order for healthcare to come up with new technology uh, i believe right now the broader technology is nanotechnology mm. that means you're going into very small components 
because when we look at the whole evolution of technology, first we have steam engine, followed by electricity, and third is computing. And right now we're in the fourth stage of the finite, sorry, the technological evolution, nanotechnology. Mm. So everything becomes small, embedded, wearable, and you have a lot of chips uh, processing all all the kind of information you, you can ever pass to a very small computer. Correct. So all these things are eventually shaping how the rest of the market will will develop. Um, say for example, healthcare, right? They're developing better vaccines, right? mm, better okay. vaccines and okay. faster mm, and mm. a faster rate all because sorts of correct, diseases, yeah. Correct. All because of the the speed of the tech, uh, the speed of the computing power that we have right now and plus the ability to do multiple iterations at the kind of speed that we can never imagine 20 years back. Mm. Yeah. So nanotech, healthcare, EVs, AIs, they, they fall under the technology umbrella. That's right. How do you screen for opportunities in this space? I'm a little bit lucky because I have uh, professional platforms to, mm. to take advantage of. But I would say, uh, going back to the technology advancement that we have right now, Think about AI it. helping you to analyze companies. And, um, you know. Yeah, think about it because right now, in fact, if you look at Yahoo Finance, uh, many years back, I, I still remember I used Yahoo Finance. We don't even have data for the S&P 500 going all the way back to 1929. Oh, sorry, 1927. Yeah, in fact, that's the data I have, I can use on Bloomberg right now. I can't go beyond 1927. Yeah, so Yahoo is giving you this kind of data. More and more free domains are giving you free information that you can take advantage of. You don't need, well, if you ask me, you don't really need a professional level kind of data to make proper analysis. Uh, I would say retail investors are catching up in terms of the kind of excess of information and resources that even the professionals are, are, are having, but uh, they don't really have a, a very strong edge if they do not know how to use it. Yeah, the because they're, they're free platforms. Correct. And even for the paid ones, it's probably, it could be affordable. It yeah, is, it and, is. And so it'd be helpful to talk about, you know, what are the factors you look at for your own investments in terms of thematic investing? Correct. For my own investing, I typically like to do my call and satellite allocation. Okay. Right? Call meaning invest in very passively track, uh, ETF that track passive index like mm-hmm. the STI index ETF or the SPY index ETF, right? One thing I'd like to point out is there's not much point to try to beat the S&P 500, right? Because most of the guys out there cannot beat. Okay. I, I tried it myself, cannot Then beat. why do themes, right? <laughs> okay. Uh, correct. Uh, yes and no. Yes and no, because if you can time the market and you can time your, your thematic exposure mm. better than the broad market, I would say yes, yeah. right? But if you try to beat the S&P consistently by focusing on certain thematic investing, it's very difficult to do that. Simply because the market in US is too efficient and there are a lot of a lot of brain power out there, geniuses out there, tons of PhDs out there trying to create algorithms to, to beat each other. So no point trying to beat the US market. But for the less efficient markets, anything outside or anywhere outside of US, you have a higher chance of beating the market. It's very possible. Okay, um, and what markets are they? Developed markets outside of US, Hong Kong, correct? Hong Kong, Europe, Europe. In fact, Chinese market it's Mm. quite inefficient. Mm. Yeah, right now, correct. But of course, that may change given the fact that they are opening their their doors to institutional investors coming in. But then again, it will still take a good 10, 20 years for for outsiders to catch up with how the market microsystem, uh, sorry, microstructure is changing. So. We still, I think we still have an advantage, or rather the retail investors will still have an advantage over the professional guys for the next 10, 20 years. Mm, yeah. Okay, I, that's a good wake-up call. It's yeah. probably re- relevant for myself when I first started investing because yeah. there's always a part of you that thinks that, oh, you know, maybe I can beat the market, but it's kind of like, well, it's really difficult Correct. after you've been in the market for a few years. My advice to all, all the guys out there is before you try to beat the market, you better make sure you have your beta exposure, that mm. means the market exposure, correct? Because if you have zero market exposure and you're trying to beat the market by allocating a high percentage of portfolio, if you cannot beat the market and let's say you suffer heavy losses and having no no market exposure, you are looking at a very poor performance overall, mm. right? So the key thing is your call exposure, 
or your cap core allocation should um, focus on having market exposure, then your satellite or your tactical exposure focus on try, trying to time certain elements of uh, that rotation going on in the marketplace. Mm. So mm. let's take myself, for example. Yep. Uh, let's say I want to get into thematic investing. Mm-hmm. And what I'm going to do is probably look at the available themes out there. Yep. So how do I evaluate the fund managers? And you know how do I evaluate all these different funds? Let's say I, I pick a certain theme that mm-hmm. I'm more interested in, that I have knowledge about, and I go into it. You know, how do I choose? Um, generally, I, I would I would say there's two answer to your question. First would be if we're talking about passively, uh, sorry, in ETS passively tracking certain indices. Mm-hmm. Um, the, and that is the thing about tracking error. Correct. Right, uh, it's huge thing in themes, right? Especially for themes. That's right. In terms of tracking. That's yeah. right. But the more specific is the tracking difference, not the tracking error. Mm. Right. Tell me a bit more about that. Right. So yeah. tracking difference is how much you are deviating from the the index that you're tracking. So that's the tracking difference. Tracking error is basically um, the incorrect definition for how much it deviates from the index. Mm. Correct. So if let's say you are following a particular index, you're main aim for the ETF is to have low tracking difference. But more often than not, you find that tracking error data is provided instead. But all you need to do is actually you just, um, you just, um, okay, there's a formula to do it. I can't remember how. <laughs> yeah, I just can't remember off my head, but yeah, right, right. It's, it's closely correlated. It's basically the semi-variance of your your um, tracking error. Yeah, so what we want is just to, to keep Keep it closer to the tracking the, the index right. that you're tracking, right? That's right. Okay. That's right. For certain thematic themes that you're looking at, um, let's say you're investing in a mutual fund that mm. says um, you're getting exposure to EVs, right? Or it can be anything. Right. Actually, the best thing to do to do is to make sure that the fund manager has got very high tracking error mm-hmm. or tracking difference mm. because you don't want it to be like behaving like an index, right? Okay. That's right. That's the alpha. That's right. That's the alpha. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So there's no point in having a very active fund manager having very low tracking error, but he's behaving like an index. Then you might as well invest in the index. That's right. That's right. There's more stability in a sense, right? Correct. And it's cheaper that way. It's it, cheaper. Yeah. It's yeah, more transparent. Okay. I have to come up fees for investing in thematic funds, right? Is that's it generally right. more expensive as well? Because uh, of the amount of work that needs to be done by the fund managers. That's right. Of course, there are some fund managers who has been delivering very good performance over the years. Mm. One way you can look at, let's say, all these active fund managers is through the the Sharpe ratio. My personal preference is I look at the Sharpe ratio, the Sortino ratio, and the information ratio. In fact, I've used these three ratios to create a proprietary model to... Proprietary means cannot tell you. <laughs> right, but yes, yeah, you can explain, explain how roughly yeah. how it works. Yeah. yeah, because one of the key things that's bugging a lot of the uh, investors out there is mm. how do you evaluate uh, mutual funds mm. effectively and objectively? Correct. It's, uh, it's the biggest question out there that's bothering a lot of investors because it's very hard to compare Apple to Apple because some of these funds, they have similar names, they, they have similar investment mandates that is what they communicate to the public, but what they're doing is different. And so that's the reason why I choose to use all these financial ratios uh, or rather performance ratios. These are typically risk-adjusted ratios because uh, sharp ratio and Sotino ratios are risk-adjusted returns ratios. Uh, these two are very closely correlated. In fact, Sotino is a deviation from uh, the sharp ratio, right? And sharp ratio is actually developed for measuring of mutual funds performance, right? So to keep it simple is basically to measure the risk-adjusted returns of the mutual funds. So for ad- every additional unit of risk that this fund is carrying, how much more he can return to the investors uh, or rather potentially how much he can return to the investors. So Sotino ratio strips out certain element of the, the sharp ratio to measure um, the downside risk that it carries when when this fund's experiments are drawdown. So it actually gives you a better picture of how the fund manager is dealing with uh, a drawdown or how he navigates the market during a drawdown. So the lesser the fund manage, uh, sorry, the, the lesser the fund manager experiences a drawdown, it goes on to show that he is able to mitigate the fall of the investment much better than his peers. Right. So these are some of the things that I look at. Information ratio is basically measuring its performance against its stated benchmark. 
and also against his peers. Right, because comparing against peers is important, right? It, I mean, themes, you, you look at historical data, but you also need to compare Correct. all the different similar themes out in the market. That's right, because mm. uh, in most of the market segments that these fund managers are investing in, they are usually 50 to 100 similar peers. Mm. So you want to know how is this fund manager A, um, you know, performing within this, this um, you know, league of players. Yeah. So you want to know how, how, how well they can do within that own segment and this is this is very crucial of course one of the key thing that investors can take advantage of is the Morningstar rating mm. in fact my model is very similar to Morningstar rating but um, I, I strip off certain elements of it but by tree correct because yeah, I, I disagree with how, how Morningstar okay. built their models but could you give some insights into that like what do you disagree with just, just a rough idea uh, because it really reflects your investment style and thesis. That's right. right. Yeah. Because Morningstar has got four pillars in their models. Two of the two pillars of their models uh, look at the investment team, mm. right? That means whoever is the fund managers. I, I would say it's a good thing to do if I have the resources. I would love to track the management team, but for the model to work, it's it's very difficult because you le- you need a lot of data tracking this where these fund managers are moving, so. Since it's not quite feasible to, to implement, I, I strip it out. Uh, because by looking at the performance of the funds, it's good enough to know whether with the new investment team coming in, are they doing good or, or bad, right? So looking at the performance itself, I think it's, it's, it's good enough. The other element that is very different from Morningstar, it's uh, they look at the quality of the investment firm itself. Because over the last almost two decades of investing, I tend to realize that or rather it's quite observable facts that even within a very well-established fund manager, there are your very good fund managers, your average fund managers, and your uh, below-average fund managers. Yes, correct. (laughs) Within the family, right? So I wouldn't want to weigh or give any weight to that particular pillar, Mm -hmm. right? Because it's very misleading and I feel that it will fudge out certain results or output to mm. tell me that this fund is good simply because it's sitting with firm is good right yes correct it's not as relevant for correct. you okay. yeah because if you deep dive and you, you you can see a lot of the products are they have a wide spectrum of products and the performance really it's never consistent mm. right yeah it could be due to the microstructure of the the market place that they're investing in or it can be simply a fact of the manager's skill. Culture. Correct. Yeah. Mm. Correct. So there are a lot of factors that I feel they don't warrant me to look at the firm's um, reputation and how well they, they you know, they, how well they operate within that space. So yeah, that's one of the core difference. Okay. So help me out here. So we all want to get alpha, right? I took yep. some notes about how to get alpha in yep. thematic investing, one of which will be to find something with a high tracking error, mm. right? Because that's where you get alpha. And also, um, have exposure that's not correlated, right? This is how you deviate from the, the average index performance. Anything else that actually add to the list? So for anyone out there trying to pick an investment team, whether it's in a ETF or mutual fund format, I think one of the key things people have to pay attention is any strategy, any thematic or, or sector strategy will ultimately go through a period of drawdown. Mm. That means it will outperform for a few years and you will have what we call a mean reversion, but ultimately we need to stay focused on some of the thematic exposure that it has long-term to be proven to be more robust than some of the average sectoral, uh, sectoral exposure that we, we can see. Some of these would be your, your technology. In fact, I myself try to construct portfolios that has got a higher relative exposure to technology and consumer discretionary, also healthcare. So these are the three broad teams that I always try to structure my portfolio around with. It's a matter of when I'm implementing the strategy, do I raise or decrease the weights within the portfolio? Mm. Yeah. In these three areas? In these three areas, Mm. broadly speaking. But of course, if let's say when the time calls for it, because the market is in a very specific environment, I may raise exposure to materials. Like for example, right now, the material sector is very strong by virtue because and it's correlated with energy sector, mm. right? So these two sectors are strong, but on a long-term perspective, energy sector has always been very volatile. 
and so is materials. So this is where timing comes in. Correct. Mm -hmm. So the timing element is also very crucial. But for the very, let's say, very lazy investor out there who simply say, I, I don't want to... I don't want to try timing it, but I want to have certain sector or thematic exposure within my portfolio. I would definitely go with, with the suggestion of having technology as a permanent strategic allocation, but maybe you can from time to time raise it or decrease it. Consumer discretionary and healthcare. Healthcare. Correct. Because healthcare has a very defensive nature. Um. And couple that with the technology nature, which is it's aggressive growth, growth yeah. correct. So yeah, huge it, drawdowns at any one point in time, correct. Yeah. So it balances out mm. all these um, headwinds in the market. Mm. And consumer discretionary kind of sits in between. Yeah, That's right. Yeah. That's right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Jake. No problem. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening all the way here. Stay after this outro because usually we have some bonus content right at the end. It's like the end credit scene of a movie. But before that, I hope you've learned something useful today. If you like more of this content, join our Telegram group, follow us on social media, sign up for our newsletter. For all this and more, check out thefinancialcoconut.com. My name is Andrew. Stay tuned for the next episode of Chill with the Financial Coconut. What is one of your core life principles? Core life principles is follow your passion, right? Know what you like to do. Of course, that's also very challenging because when you speak to a lot of young people, um, I was young myself, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to pinpoint where my interest lies or where is my passion. I've spoken to a lot of young people recently, or rather over the last few years because uh, I've, been, I've been engaging a lot of interns and uh, some of my own family members. When you talk to them, they just simply say, I don't know, I'll find out. Mm. Hopefully you find out over time. Some people that I've known, I've met, they don't even find what is their passion even in their 40s. So it's something that I can't help everybody with because uh, it's very much about self-reflection. Um, we all go through our life cycle. Right, because your I mean, everyone's life is different. We will go through certain events in life that maybe perhaps will give us a better insight what we truly love. Some may not. But the question is if you don't seek out, you will never find out. How do you describe your passion though? I would say my passion is in the markets. Mm. Um actually I knew it since young, but there How how do you know? How do I know? Mm. It's it's very weird because I'm very sensitive to numbers. Right, and in fact, a lot of a lot of boys when they grow up, they love to play soccer games, right? Uh, instead of playing the simulation games, right? I, I play the championship manager. It's like managing a team, but you are just purely looking at statistics. I, I'm not interested in like you know playing those uh, ninety minutes or thirty minutes football game with my peer, but I'm more happy with looking at the statistics and managing how a team will evolve over time. So. I think this is the starting point. I realized that I've a knack for for numbers and statistics, and in fact, I think I did very well for 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 that. During quant, so, during, yeah. yeah, during school. So mm. I also realized that I I was uh, quite naive during my my younger days. So I get drawn into certain narrative, but after a while, I I think I grew out of it. I realized that a lot of these narratives are usually a bit too late by the time it gets to your years or gets to your yard, gets to your um, to the media or in front of you. So you, you can say that I was, I, I'd gone through the knots in life to realize that by focusing on the numbers, by focusing on statistics, it is a better way, at least for me, to navigate myself in the markets. Mm. What is a piece of financial advice that you think should be shared more often? <laughs> yeah, this is this is uh, what I always told my friends, my clients, that essentially investing and trading, it's more often mixed up and people couldn't differentiate or distinguish the two different polarity of these activities that you are trying to get yourself engaged in. Because in trading, it's timing the markets, right? So it, it actually goes back to the thematic things that... Um, uh, we were, were talking about earlier. Mm. But for investing, investing actually can be very simple, right? Because investing is about spending enough time in the markets. 
I have started investing 18 years back and I ride through the boom and bust on the call allocation of my investing. And true enough, I didn't lose my pants, right? Because the markets will always be up if you're investing in the broad markets or even in certain sector uh, or thematic exposure. If the broad markets that you're in has got a long-term positive regression, you will be net-net better off five to 10 years down the road. But if you try to time it, unless you are savvy enough, you equip yourself with the right knowledge to time it, it's a very challenging uh, activity to be engaged in because it's mentally and psychologically very, how should I put it? It's not easy to deal with, right? If you're trying to time it, if you are just a very simple investor, right? A more simple way for anyone to be involved in investing is to be consistent, to deploy money on a regular basis. I think this is what a lot of people call the dollar cost averaging because um, investors fail to recognize the fact that, hey, I'm building an investment portfolio to be prepared for my retirement down the road because you want to have a good base of financial assets. Think of it as the number of companies you want to own if you're a businessman, right? You want to own a a group diverse businesses under your portfolio so that you have no financial worries years down the road. But for trading, it's different because trading, you could be um, riding the trend up on a specific market and you could be underweight in specific markets. So those are very active management. And if you don't have the time, the expertise to do that, you will run into a lot of trouble. Unless you have the passion to equip yourself and you know be really involved in hands-on managing those activities. Otherwise, I would say focus on getting market returns. If you can do a good job in, in getting market returns, then we can talk about outperforming or beating the market. Okay. Yeah. All right. My last question yep. for you. What is one area of your life that you're giving additional focus right now? I would say focusing on my current work, advising clients and managing their money to the best of my abilities and helping my friends my relative to achieve adequate financial knowledge or investment knowledge so that they don't fall prey to a lot of the hype out there asking them to you know do this and that whatnot you really love what you do and numbers really draw you correct correct i i I can go non-stop my wife my wife gotta literally tell me hey jake (laughs) stop it (laughs) enough yeah, yeah, what situation is that? Are you talking about certain investments, you know, about family, any, financial planning or... It could be anything because uh, let's say we go out for dinner and I could be looking at, let's say, <laughs> hey, um, there are more guys wearing ASICs than Nike. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should correct. invest. <laughs> correct. Okay. And oh. yeah, correct. So uh, I would say observation is very crucial, mm. right? Your day-to-day observation, what's happening. Uh, in your in your life, I, th- I think it matters a lot, and mm. it ties back to you know where we should put our money to. Nice. Uh, I would love to have a conversation with you again about any other topics you're interested in. Yep. Thank you for coming to the show. Thank you very much. Right. Thanks for having me. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 